Hello and welcome to Thinking with Opera, a new series of podcasts produced as part of the DARE partnership between Opera North and the University of Leeds. Begun during lockdown, these discussions and conversations explore opera and its component parts in the light of the wider world of culture and ideas. just heard the beginning of the overture to Thomas Addis's second opera, The Tempest, composed in 2004. I'm Professor Edward Venn of the University of Leeds, and I'm currently researching Thomas Addis's operas. I'm joined today with Alita Collins, who choreographed the premiere production of The Tempest at the Royal Opera House in 2004, along with other premiere productions such as Bert Whistle's Second Mrs. Kong and Mark Anthony Turnage's Anna Nicole and Coriolane. Alita has also directed for Opera North, including La Fanchula del West and Dido and Aeneas. And so today we will be talking about Addis's operas but also about the dynamics of directing and producing operas more widely. Alita, hello. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Um, these podcasts are called Thinking Opera, and the nature of operatic thought is something I'm very interested in. The ways in which plot, music, staging, action on the stage, the inflections by performance, lighting, dancing, all contribute towards the meaning that an audience member will receive in the opera house. And so Addis's operas provide a very interesting focal point, particularly at this time. Alita and I are recording this via Skype because of the COVID-19 pandemic. And the notion of confinement, the notion of restricted motion and the tensions between the notion of safety, the refuge that our houses can provide, but also the sense of forced confinement come through in all three of his operas, in fact. And so we have in his 1995 Powder Her Face, the story of an elderly duchess living in a hotel room, thinking back to her glory days of wealth and fame. But at the same time, in the present day, she is penniless. She is about to be evicted. And so we have her taking refuge in her thoughts, confined in her hotel room, shaped by the social circumstances in which she finds herself. And we have in Addis's third opera, The Exterminating Angel, written in 2015, but premiered in Salzburg 2016, an adaptation of Louis Bunuel's 1962 film of the same name, in which a group of socialites find themselves trapped after dinner in a dining room of a house, unable to leave. And so there they have what appears to be forced confinement, but they also find themselves grappling with the tensions between the restrictions of social norms and bourgeois conventions alongside their own baser instincts. So Addis's operas provide, I think, a lens through which we can explore the way in which operas think, the dramaturgical instincts behind them. Alita, 
What does the notion of operatic thought or dramaturgy mean in terms of your own practice? Well, I think its very nature, opera, is this incredible collaboration and dialogue between different forms. I think that's what makes it so exciting and satisfying to work in and I hope for the audience who come to watch this that the scale of the collaboration is incredible that we're starting with the very simple one of music and text and through the singer how that initial collaboration and dialogue happens and then of course as characters in a story but it's then on the scale that operatically we work with design and then with often dancing, lighting and of course the orchestra itself. It builds into this incredible scale but at the same time it always has to be based in its own truth and that doesn't have to be a literal truth but I suppose when you work on each piece you're trying to really distill and find what is that truth, what is that dialogue you want to have and what is it within it that you want to share with the audience so that as these operas build and become such great, <laughs> sometimes monsters, um, but um, events certainly with so many people live in the moment working towards each moment happening, they are held together by this root of what it is for you as an artist with the piece that we are presenting, that dialogue and that truth that it starts from. And what's extraordinary, of course, is that when one then works on a new opera, which I've been very fortunate to have had experiences of, you're actually there in the room with the composer and can actually ask them, what, what is that? What does that mean? Why is there this moment here in the score? When you're working on a piece from the repertoire, you sort of feel a little bit more like a, um, a detective, thinking, oh, why is that there? What could that mean? And then the dialogue from that. But to actually be in the room with the composer is, uh, is a very exciting place to be. Of course it is. <laughs> Thank you. So let's let's build on that. So we began the podcast hearing the very opening bars of Addis's The Tempest. And at the time of the production in 2004, there were lots of articles in the press exploring the notion of Addis, then still incredibly youthful at the time that The Tempest was premiered, tackling Shakespeare's final play. It's a play that many composers have taken on over the centuries with varying degrees of success. And one of the things that Ades did with The Tempest, along with his librettist Meredith Oakes, is in his terms, make a geometry of the play. He recognised that the big speeches and the iambic pentameter and the conventions we associate with The Tempest don't necessarily translate to the opera house. So they streamlined the plot, um, they shifted the emphasis of the plot in various ways, and 
also changed the texts, replacing Shakespeare's original with more modern, pithier, rhyming couplets in the main, which were more amenable to vocal setting. This was not without controversy, but critics in the main regard it as a successful reimagining of the play. So from the outset, The Tempest was taking its subject matter at a slant from perhaps the way in which tradition has received it, or in another way, responding to theatrical traditions whereby The Tempest has been reimagined in recent years in a way that musical Tempests haven't. And this geometry to the play features in the music as well. I'm going to talk in a bit about the ways in which Addis's musical language resonates with but deviates from traditional music and also the ways in which it might function as a metaphor for confinement. But before I get on to that, as part of the collaborative team behind that premiere production, how did you relate to your knowledge of previous Tempests and work with the composer and director to come up with your own envisaging of what this operatic Tempest was like? Well, I think I count myself rather lucky because I'd never worked on another production of The Tempest before, which I think coming to something like Addis's Tempest was probably really fortunate. I was able to respond to it for what it was as opposed to what it wasn't or what was missing. And I was the choreographer in the team And so I was looking to create a movement language for the whole production. And of course, one of the characters, Ariel, uh, is often that performance is created airily. How can we get our performer to fly? We decided we were going to try being, uh, you know, in the air for one moment in the overture. But that actually, because vocally she flew, it was an incredible music that Addis wrote for her, and incredible that she could actually perform it so amazingly. Uh, but it really flies her vocal score. It felt like we didn't need her on a on a wire flying about as well. That there was something uh, more interesting to explore physically with her not flying around. So that was my main charge, but I was also looking at the whole time the way Prospero or Caliban was moving, and there were dancers involved at the feast as well. And I was really looking to try to find movement motifs in the same way that within the story, and I think as well within the score, that we hear these motifs being woven through the evening but I was looking for that physically and I became very interested in a physical interpretation of time and the passing of time which I think all the characters at some point inhabited. Wonderful thank you. Well we've just heard about Ariel's vocal virtuosity I think this is a good moment to play an extract from The Tempest, Ariel's aria, Five Fathoms Deep. Five 
That was Cindia Seedon in a recording made during the 2007 revival of the premiere production at the Royal Opera House conducted by Thomas Addis. You mentioned earlier about how when you were approaching The Tempest you were interested in the movement of the characters and that struck me that one of the qualities of Addis's music is this sense of movement within it, teeming under the surface. And one might think that this state of perpetual transition, this state of moving constantly, sits in opposition to the theme of confinement, which at the start of the podcast I mentioned with respect to the Tempest, but also Powder Her Face and the Exterminating Angel. So I thought I would take a moment to reflect on how the musical substance of Addis's operas might be understood as a metaphor for this notion of confinement, both the sense of being enclosed within something, but also the contrary sense of knowing that there is something beyond these walls, this sense of relating to or striving for or fleeing from whatever stands outside these bounds. I'll begin not with the opening chords of the overture to the Tempest, those magical high sustained chords for wind, harmonic strings and muted brass, but another setting. Mendelssohn's Midsummer Night's Dream overture. Mendelssohn begins with wind chords which move from E major to B major via A minor and back to E major. The first two chords in The Tempest would seem to be alluding to the Mendelssohn. Instead of we have slightly different spacing. The first event is a bare perfect fifth, E to B, rather than Mendelssohn's E to G sharp. So Ades appears to be ushering us in to a familiar world of musicking Shakespeare. But he goes in a very different direction. Mendelssohn, you'll recall, goes to A minor and back to E major, thereby grounding his opening within the conventions of 19th century tonality. Ades takes it in a different direction. to a bare fifth B flat F, which by the logic of conventional tonality is unrelated. However, this is part of Ades's notion of geometric harmony or irrationally functional as he calls it. And so what we have is that in the high sustained chords, a different musical logic underpins progression. so on. And after 18 such pairs of notes, we find ourselves back where we started. So Ades constructs his music from logical patterns of intervals which touch on 
certain tonal and familiar patterns, but derive their own logic from their own intervallic structures and creating, when presented in these terms, a very watertight structure. It begins where it ends and so on. And that gives us a very vivid metaphor of confinement. And you'll recall from the opening excerpt from the Tempest Overture that those magical chords are suddenly contrasted with much lower material, much more dynamic, much more volatile as the storm suddenly builds up and erupts a series of dyads building up here. However, these are based on precisely the same musical logic, this time ascending rather than descending. And so on. And so even within the same logical intervallic structure, ADES creates two very different types of music. And I think this is important for understanding his operatic aesthetic, that the intervals provide a way into his harmonic world, and these are defined differently for each opera. But the way in which the material is orchestrated, the voices of the singers it's given to, the pacing of these events, these are all related to the demands of the plot. And so far from being a sterile intervallic logic, it becomes the warp and weft of the opera as a lived experience. So Alita, I was wondering, from a choreographic point of view, um, to what extent did you find yourself responding to the types of patterns that ADES puts into the music and working within and around the constraints and freedoms that his development of these patterns afford? Well, as always with a brand new piece, one of the major challenges is that um, you don't actually know what it's going to sound like. You have the score and the often wonderful opportunity to talk to the composer, but there is no recording. There's there's nothing there's nothing you know to be able to 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 see for myself anyway these patterns to be able to refer to. I found that in the original production, the moments that were with the singers, I was able to access in a much easier way these patterns and to work with the singers about replicating those movements, whether it being circles and squares, a sort of geometric shapes. However, in the incredible, and I, I love hearing you talking about the overture, um, I had no idea what that was going to sound like. Not because there wasn't a recording of it anywhere, but um, he hadn't written it. We did the entire rehearsals for the opera and it hadn't been written yet and in the overture the wonderful director and designer Tom Cairns wanted to see the sinking of the ship and as I mentioned earlier we were interested in having this moment as Ariel's flight so it was going to be a rather epic beginning to this story and um, 
we didn't know what the music was going to be like. So anyway, I asked Tom, what will the overture be? And um, I think, although I still haven't got the envelope, he said, well, it'll be section A, um, seashore, section B, lapping waves, uh, machine gun, um, drowning, repeat of machine gun, and there was something else. It was just this very clear structure of what that was going to be. And that's all I had. In fact, we rehearsed, we teched, we even did all of our piano rehearsals with the um, stage management just having this list of things and a rough idea of that will be about a minute long or that will feel like this. We had no idea. And it was at the Zitzprober in a very kind of um, almost filmic way down the centre aisle of the Royal Opera House, down to Tom, who was in the pit, came the score, and it was put on the on the stand, and everyone just played the overture for the first time. It was being played, it was being heard. Uh, I mean, it was absolutely extraordinary. And what an extraordinary piece of work I think that overture is. We did subsequent productions. I think we did it in Salzburg and Copenhagen, and then brought it back to the Royal Opera House and each time I was able to develop further choreographically with the music because I was beginning to understand the music more and being able to <clears throat> spend more time with recordings of it. But in that first premiere it really was an extraordinary moment to hear that overture. It's one of my favourite pieces of music. I absolutely love it. It's a truly wonderful moment. I remember being at the premiere and difficult to describe verbally, but the set is largely black at the start. And during the course of the overture, various things emerge. We get little geometric flashes of slightly green lighting, which reveal aspects of the stage. When the lights are up, we can see that there are strange green rocks and a large book or like an artist's palette opening and closing. We can come back to that later. But during the overture itself, what grabs the attention, first of all, is Prospero lazily floating mid-height across the stage from left to right, twirling his staff. And then we begin to see multiple aerials, really, don't we? We yeah. see aerial flying, but also, I recall, a large silhouette of aerial yes, in the background right. with her arms moving like a clock. Um, we see an outline of a ship in a blue colour set against the black background falling down from the top of the stage to the bottom and I believe later on it floats back up Ariel sort of ushers it yes. back up yes. as well. Um, it's, a, it's a highly evocative and memorable opening particularly in conjunction with the music and to hear of the ways in which it came together and the way in which the component parts come together, I think um, offers an extraordinary insight into the way in which operatic meaning works, the way in which music and visuals and dance and set, these are all separate media and the interactions between them come together to create this composite effect. How did you react when you saw how your images combined with the music? Did you see them as a 
contrapuntal dialogue with the music in the sense that they were exploring similar ideas in a different way? Or do you feel and did you conceive them much more in terms of an integration with the the motion of the music? I know that you didn't have access to it, but obviously you know other bits. How do you position your own ideas against Tom's? Well, I think, I mean... We had clarity, didn't we, all of us as artists, that this was about the storm and the ship sinking. And that Ariel's role in that was that she had a great hand to it and whether that it was that and whether it was also um, the way she was able to cool the wind and rain and the elements. So we, we knew this was going to be elemental. We knew this was going to be Ariel in one of their most wonderful sort of show-off kind of roles. It was a role that Ariel was presenting fantastically. This image of Prospero asleep, almost dreaming this, felt right. And then trying to sort of be excited about the fact that Ariel was sort of multifaceted, that that's why we had so many of them, that they could be in the air and the next moment they could... That image of the one at the back with the ticking hands also, I quite like the idea that it was almost like on a ship where you might have those dials, navigational type dials that were beginning to sort of go squiffy because of in the storm, the ship was, was doing this. It's a hard question, how did I access that music or knowingly work with what strand of it? Um, I think one of the things I am drawn to with Tom's music is this underlying movement. To me, it feels like the sort of blood and almost like the heart beating underneath the situation and that however possibly serene or still the moment on top is, underneath there's a drive and an ambition and just a beating heart. It was what I think it's what makes Thomas's music so human and why I connect to it in a very human way. So actually, even if I was coming up with images which by their nature feel more static, how I was encouraging the performers and how I was encouraging the tempo of it was to feel that there was a a very human drive underneath it, that there was nothing that was about it just being pictorial or image-based, that there is an underlying drive. Um, I think that's where I connect to Tom's music. And I think that's one of the reasons why his music works so well in the Opera House, that it takes these human qualities and projects them into that space and his music's so well designed to communicate in a contemporary sensibility the, the complexities of human life and explore those things. I was very struck by the way too that you described the way that you could present simultaneously the different facets of Ariel's character, whereas, of course, within the plot and the libretto, and to an extent the music, these things have to happen sequentially. We pick them up. And so the ways in which the different media 
take advantage of their own grammar in order to present different things in different ways, I think is what makes the experience of opera so compelling that we have this excess of information in a good way and we work with it and we as audience members examine the correspondences and the conflicts between these different medias and it's from the interaction between these different arts that the overall meaning emerges and so to hear you speak of that process in action is absolutely fascinating. Um, I would like to come back to that notion of movement again that we keep coming back to and the stage design for both the premiere productions of The Tempest and Addis's later The Exterminating Angel both make use of large-scale stage props that themselves are forever mobile and in action. And so in The Tempest there is this book-like or easel-like construction in the centre of the stage which opens and closes and rotates and this gives the opportunity for height and depth. And in The Exterminating Angel, which ostensibly is set within a single room, we have a large Art Deco style wooden arch in the centre of the stage, which moves forwards and backwards to give a sense of varying enclosed or open spaces. It rotates, it helps demarcate different rooms or the inside from the outside. And so I think I get the sense that the set designers that ADES works with as well respond to this continual teeming energy that underpins his music. Would that be your experience? Yes, um, ADES has worked now with my very good friend Tom Cairns on both of these productions. On The Tempest, Tom not only designed the set, but he directed the production and was working with Addis all the way through the, the final drafting of the piece. When they then collaborated for a second time on Exterminating Angel, Cairns didn't design the set, but he wrote the libretto and directed it. So as collaborators, that's incredibly strong. And I think really interesting that The Tempest, whose design and direction were just so integral and one and the same that it was almost impossible, which I think is what's wonderful about it, to separate them, that um, their relationship then continued. Cairns and Addis worked together on the libretto and the music. It was Hildegard Beckler that designed the set for um, Exterminating Angel and Cairns yet again directed it. So clearly when Tom Addis is working on operas he's already thinking as all good opera composers should about the ways in which these pieces work on stage. Um, not just I think the practical logistics of getting people on and off in a timely manner as well as incorporating traditional operatic set pieces, arias, duets, ensemble work. But I think he's also very attuned to the sense of drama as a whole, the way in which set design, lighting, choreography all might be hinted at in the score 
but also giving license for future productions to work their own magic alongside the material. There's a quotation of his that I'm very fond of where he describes the mysterious thing that happens when you set actions to music, a third shape that emerges when something non-visual like a musical score is acted out by people moving on a stage. And it's that mysterious thing which I feel is the essence of operatic thought, the way in which these different components can come together to create something which in the heat of an individual performance is unique at that time, that no two performances will be the same, less still two productions. So with your directing hat on, I'd be very interested to get a sense of how, when you approach a familiar work such as Dido and Aeneas or La Fanchula, how you begin and proceed with working with the score to come up with your own vision. The journey starts in a very similar way to working even on a new piece, which is it's the first meetings between the director and designer, and that it's working slowly through what world physically we're going to create really helps to focus the ideas and themes that we're interested in when working through the the score bit by bit really sharing ideas of what this is about and what we want to bring to this is very much in that initial journey with the designer and then other members of the team are usually invited in as we show what we've begun to create and that builds and grows. I've never had another choreographer coming on board myself as a director. I mean, I must say that with, with Tom Cairns, he's, um, he's, he's incredible to be able to, be, as a designer himself, he chooses on some projects to say, no, I'm not going to design this, I'm going to direct this, and invites another designer in. I haven't yet worked on a piece where I thought, oh no, I'd like to get a different choreographer in. I think that would be really interesting. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> um, not quite sure how that would be, so, that, so maybe that's a good reason to, to do that. With the pieces that you mentioned, I think particularly Dido and Aeneas, that is a piece that has dance very much at its heart. just working um, in Berlin at the Staats Opera with Simon Rattle and the um, artist Oliver Eliasson, you know, the, the, the great son that was at the Tate. He's actually just had a retrospective at the Tate. So myself and Oliver collaborated to create a Rameau, a Hippolyte et Aracy with Simon. And that piece, again, has very much 
dance at its heart and I'm often asked to create these pieces where there's a lot of dance within it and that makes an awful lot of sense as a choreographer that of course it's quite interesting to then have the same person who's choreographing it continue and direct the characters and I think it's exploring that dialogue between dancing and not dancing and what those areas are it's quite different to a piece like Fanchula where you couldn't get further away from dance it's so specific in its detail that it's kind of filmic that it's it's one of one of the hardest pieces to take away from its setting and it's very clear narrative. I found that quite challenging, but actually, I think probably that's the, the, the piece where I've most surrendered to it musically in terms of what's on the page there and what I'm hearing is exactly what I feel about this music. That, that there are times like when, when I'm hearing Dido and it says on it, the sailors do a jig. I, I'd respond thinking, well, I'm not hearing that. I'm hearing this. And then that becomes an exciting rub with what I'm reading and what I'm hearing and what I want to experience. But with Fanchula, I said, yes, this is, this is exactly what I'm hearing and feeling. And that is what the music is. And I really enjoyed creating something which I think the closest to something sort of filmic that I've done before with a piece. Whereas with something like Dido or Hippolyte, that felt like it had space to really create its own world. And that became a world that was um, imagined and created with the designer and is not recognisable in that way. It's a little bit like when you're talking about the original uh, production of The Tempest, that incredible object in the centre, and you said, oh, was it a book or an easel? Or I think there's so many wonderful ways to interpret it because it's such a simple object. Um, but, of course, you can imagine how tough that was to rehearse on because it's constantly moving, not just in a circular way, but also in an opening and closing way, um, like a book. So we actually rehearsed the whole piece on the set. It was in the rehearsal room, which is an incredible uh, benefit of being at the Royal Opera House, certainly, that they, they put it into the rehearsal room so that we could make it with the set, because it was the only way, really, that it could have been done. That's really, really interesting. And so thank you so much for that insight into the ways in which you engage with these scores. Um, 
But to stay with that Tempest example for a moment and the recurring frame of movement, but also confinement where we began our discussion, often in Addis's music, it's, it is moving, but when that's put into the service of operas of confinement, of thinking about confinement, we get often a sense of motion without movement. These gyres and gimbals as people are moving around this psychic storm that's centered on Prospero, really, as his mechanisms for his uh, revenge on the Neapolitan court come into play and the various cogs are turning. We see this motion. And of course, I think one of the things which makes um, Ades and Oakes's revisioning of the play so interesting is the way in which his plans spiral out of control. And this has an impact on the music itself. And we eventually get this shift of musical center, as it were. So at the start of the third act, the music begins to develop an intervallic pattern that we heard elsewhere in the opera. It's a similar recurring intervallic pattern to those that I played earlier, but... a series of alternating whole tones and perfect fifths. And this material begins to envelop the third act until at the end of the opera, Caliban and Ariel are alone on the island and their music is based almost exclusively on this material. So finally, all of the apparent motion without movement that we witness earlier in the opera begins to shift as the various plot strands, the narrative strands, reach their own resolution. We're left with, in a sense, a new conclusion, a new musical world left for Caliban and Ariel. When you were thinking about the choreography as an arch over the opera as a whole, you've talked about how characters are reflected in your design. I wondered if your choreographic decisions as they occur from beginning to end, also have a sense of evolution, of change in response to the drama and the music? Yes, I think so. I think um, particularly the kind of order and tightness of the beginning, that, that as, a, as a general overall arc, that became bigger and bolder. I'm thinking of particularly the, the many aerials and their, their giant sort of wings but that as it moved on, I think possibly as well because of musically how it shifted, everything became simpler and almost Ariel became more human and that it wasn't this incredibly sort of animated spirit who was constantly form-changing and constantly up to, up to tricks, that there became something more human about the whole piece by the end. Um... And physically, I think they became, they behaved in a more human way. I think of all of the characters, we've, we've touched on Ariel the most. And I think her specific arc is very interesting that we've heard an instance of Cynthia Seden up at the very stratospheric top of her vocal register in Five Fathoms Deep. But her lowest note occurs in the third act when talking of the misery she's brought to bear on the Neapolitan court and reporting this to Prospero. And she says the lines, your spell so works them that if you saw them, 
your heart would soften, mine would, were I human. And at that moment, were I human, she reaches the very lowest note that she's to sing in the whole opera. And that's virtually the final text she sings. And, and I think it's just such a wonderful musical design that it not only takes into account the ways in which the incredible vocal demands of the opening will have a tiring effect on the singer, but also by bringing the music down to a lower register, it dramatically depicts Ariel's shift of sensibility. It's a wonderful moment. Um, I'd like to begin to draw together the strands of our conversation by really returning to the theme of confinement. We've talked a lot about the mechanics of operatic thought, about how meaning can emerge within and between the different media. But I think one of the key things in all of Tom's operas, in fact, is the way in which the sense of confinement has a very ambiguous resolution at the end. And so in Powder Her Face, the Duchess is evicted from the hotel. She leaves her refuge only to emerge into the world of 1990s London in which the structures that essentially brought about her tragic demise, primarily patriarchy, are still there. So she leaves one voluntary confinement and emerges into um, another set of restrictions and strictures. In The Exterminating Angel, following um, Boonwell's precedent in his film, the opera ends with the characters stuck on stage. The opera house itself becomes a site of confinement. And in The Tempest even as well, where ostensibly we have Caliban and Ariel having freed themselves from Prospero's mastery and regained the island for themselves, the music that they sing is bound once again by intervallic logic. So Caliban sings. Ariel. Caliban. And then he continues. And so on. But if we take the pictures of their vocal line and transpose them, we actually find that they are stuck in their own intervallic pattern. So perhaps their apparent freedom is just reconfiguring a new sense of confinement. They're still stuck on the island and alone in themselves. And so I think all of Addis's operas, in a way, present us with a situation at the start, a dramatic situation which involves various forms of confinement, either literal or symbolic or psychological or social, or all of these combined. And he, we work through these problems and the characters break free from one set of circumstances only to find themselves in a new form of confinement. And I suppose the takeout from this, and it's expressed operatically rather than in terms of a philosophical treatise as it were, is that I think within our own lives, we are continually finding ourselves the subject of various 
forces, whether it's our own desires, whether it's external forces acting upon us, patriarchy, economy, laws and legislation. And if there's any moral to take from these operas, and Ades is very, I think, um, guarded about offering moral judgments on these, but I think as audience members, we're presented with situations which enable us to reflect on our own choices, on our own circumstances, and how we negotiate the continual push and pull, the tension between the safety of our own self-built confines and the pressures which sometimes force us into boxes or places and so on. And I think um, Ades's music and his operas and the collaborations he's come up with offer us these depictions of this continual cycle. As we continue through life, we find ourselves up against these tensions and the ways in which we conceive them, respond to them, negotiate with them and learn to live with them is a very compelling message for contemporary life. I don't know how you feel about any of that. I thought that was fantastically put. Thank you. It was wonderful. Alita, thank you so much for talking to me today and bringing your creative insights into the art of opera and the ways of thinking about opera. Thank you. You've been listening to a Thinking with Opera podcast produced by Opera North and the University of Leeds. For more information and further reading on the subjects discussed, you can download the accompanying notes. Visit operanorth.co.uk for more audio and video streaming and the latest news and performance details.